0: you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as we will be looking at a message today entitled, The Characteristics of True Repentance of Sin. The characteristic of True Repentance of Sin. Not to be confused with the false semi-pseudo-repentance that we see so many times today where we just simply throw up an I'm sorry and go on about sinning. I want us to see today that David is going to give us a lesson in true repentance and what it really looks like. And I know that lately I have been preaching a lot about sin. And that's okay because the Bible speaks a lot about sin. In fact, it is the whole reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth as a sacrifice of atonement so that you could be freed and forgiven of your sins. So I do not apologize in talking about sin. But in talking about sin, I would endeavor this morning to bring a lesson on true repentance. What does it look like? What does true repentance consist of? I want to take that time this morning, and I do say that time because it's going to take some time. We will be traveling through the entire 51st Psalm together. And I want us to take time to see what true repentance looks like so that we can be a people of true repentance. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, what has the church gained If it is popular, but there is no conviction, no repentance, and no power. What do we gain if we're popular? What do we gain as a church if we're just the place to be? Another social club? We gain nothing. There is no conviction, no repentance, and no power. So as we look at this message today, I want to give you a little background, and we're going to see the background as it's laid out for us in Scripture. Psalm 51, if you were reading from a Hebrew Bible today, the first verse would be the history of the the first verse that you have. So the first two verses would be contained in that little history that you have right under the number there. Everybody see in your Bible where it says Psalm 51? And then it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. In the Hebrew Bible, that's actually the first two verses of this text. In our English Bible, it's just this intro to the text, and we're going to pick up verse one, of course, in a moment. But I want you to see the history behind this psalm, because this is, as the history says, it's the psalm of repentance from David. David, a man after God's own heart, who was, by his own fleshly desires, led into sin. You can see the account of this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. As that intro already said, it was the sin of adultery. And if you know the story, in 2 Samuel 11, David went out on his rooftop and and on his balcony and he looked on the rooftop at Bathsheba, there at her home, and she was bathing outdoors as was common in the day. I venture to say this, it was probably not the first time that David had looked out his balcony and saw Bathsheba naked. Hence the reason that he went back to look again. It is always that second glance that gets you in trouble. So he went back out on the balcony and he looked down and he saw Bathsheba bathing. And in his sinful, wicked flesh, and and I want to assure you of this, your flesh will never be anything other than sinful and wicked until it is destroyed and you are glorified in heaven with Christ. Amen. Amen. But what we see here, David looked and he saw Bathsheba, and he desired her, and he desired her sexually. We know that. It was a sexual sin. And that's how it began. And he summons her because he was the king and had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. And he summons her, and she came, and he lay with her, as Scripture says. That means he had an intimate, inappropriate, adulterous sexual relationship with her. And in doing that, she became pregnant. And so then what happened is David had to come up with some type of scheme, some type of of cover-up, so that he would not be caught in his sin. So what he did is he devised this plan, and he said, you know what, her husband is Uriah the Hittite. He's out battling for me because I'm the king. He's under my service, and so what I can do is I can summon him home as quickly as possible. He can come. He can lay with his wife. She can become pregnant. In all of his days, he will raise a kid that belongs to me, but it will be mine and Bathsheba's little secret. No one really has to know about it. So he did. He summoned Uriah the Hittite. He came home home off the battlefield. And Uriah was such an honorable man and honored David so much that he would not go in and lay with his wife. He laid at the door and slept outside. He would not enter into the bedchamber with her because he knew that his men were off fighting war. He could not do that with a clear conscience. So David's first little scheme did not work. So he did as we all do. He has to scheme a little more to cover up his sin, right? When we find ourselves in sin and we don't find ourselves at a place of repentance, we're still in the position of cover up and we're trying to justify it and cover it up. So what he did was, he said, okay, I've got some more uh, things up my sleeve and what I'll do is I will actually send Uriah back out into the battlefield, but I'm not going to send him back into a comfortable position. I'm going to send Uriah to the front lines where he will surely die. That's exactly what he did. That is exactly what happened. Now turning, turning his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba into a murderous relationship against Uriah the Hittite. And so we see this, that David fell into sin, a man after God's own heart. And let me just tell you this, he is a man after God's own heart and was a man after God's own heart even when he fell into sin. That's why he's going to be able to teach us accurately today what true repentance of sin really looks like. So we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan. We saw as we read the intro to Psalm 51 that this is when Nathan came and confronted David. Well, what did that look like? Nathan came and he gave David a parable, a story. He talked about a man who had a sheep and someone took that sheep from that man. It was the only sheep that the man had. David began to be upset and he said that man should surely have to pay and he should surely have to pay with his life. To which Nathan turned to David and said, that man is you. That man is you. And can you imagine immediately what David felt? He had already passed judgment on himself without knowing it. I am thankful, and I will go ahead and say this, and I may say it a few times, that when Nathan came to him, David didn't say, don't judge me. Who do you think you are? Who are you to point out my sin? Don't we get to hear that a lot when we mention and preach on sin, right? He didn't have that attitude because he knew that attitude was not right. And and I want to clear that up for any of you folks who don't understand that. When Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged, he said, don't make an assumption and condemn somebody before they deserve condemnation. He wasn't saying that we do not discern a situation, and he was not saying that we do not preach against what God's Word says is sin. That would contradict the rest of Scripture. We cannot cherry pick particular parts of Scripture just for our own agenda and our own sake. So we see here, Nathan comes to David and he says, you have sinned. David did not say, who do you think you are? I'm the king and you can't judge me. David was then moved to a place of repentance. We see Psalm 51 is that place of repentance. And we're going to look at what true biblical repentance of sin will and should look like. We're going to read the psalm in its entirety. And then we are going to break it down verse by verse so that we get it in its clear context and we understand every element of this text. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love. According to Your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Not anyone else's. He didn't put the blame on anyone. His transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see how that works? He goes on and He says this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Verse 7 says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of Your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare Your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, You will not despise. And Your good pleasure make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices whole burnt offerings to delight you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. As we look at the Word of God today and as we analyze this text, I want us to verse by verse go through this because it contains the elements of true repentance. I will say this to you, if you're here today and you are not a believer, there must be an initial repentance of sin and a turning to Jesus Christ. But if you are a believer here today, please understand, until you are glorified, there must be a continual repentance going on in your life because you are continually struggling against your flesh and against your old nature. This message would apply to both this morning. So we see this. The first thing I want you to see from this text is a conviction of sin and a need of God's mercy. As we look at the characteristics of true repentance, the first thing that you must see is there will be a conviction of sin and a need of God's mercy. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love, according to Your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. True Repentance will have a conviction of sin and a need for God's mercy due to the fact that you will have inside of you a hankering for God's mercy. I know hankering is not a word that we use very often these days, but maybe we ought to revive this word. That is that deep, deep desire for something. And I'll tell you this, when we sin against God, there must be and there will be in our repentance a deep, deep desire. A hankering, if you would, for God's mercy to know this, that I need His mercy more than I need water, more than I need oxygen. I am in need of God's mercy because I am unclean. He is the only place that I can find true mercy. He is the only place that I can find true repentance. There will be conviction and a need of God's mercy due to an inward hankering for God's mercy. Even the lost man knows he's in need of God's mercy though he has no access to His mercy. He knows he's in need because even the lost man is foolish in his thinking. He knows that the things that he does is wicked. And They are wicked in all of their elements. And he needs God's mercy, but there's not that deep hankering that brings us to repentance. I promise you, when you come to a place of repentance, there will be that deep hankering, that deep desire to receive God's mercy. You will run to Him as your only hope. I pray today that some of you who are wrapped up in sin will run to God for... He. For he is your only hope of mercy. You see that it is due, that conviction is due to a hankering for God's mercy. Secondly, that conviction is due because you see the horrific offense of sin. You see how horrific sin really is. True conviction will see the horror of sin. Uh, Where we are in our culture, we no longer see the horror of sin. The horror of sin says this, that Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. It is death. It, and everything about it brings forth death. And everything about it is against God in the life that He desires to give you you will see when you are truly repentant, you will see the horror of sin. That it is dirty, that it is evil, that it is wretched, that it is awful, that it is filthy, and you will see your need of mercy because you will honestly see the horror of sin. That it is dark and it is no place for you to live your life. It is nothing for you to handle, to taste, to touch, to feel, to be a part of. But unfortunately, we live in a society where there is no longer any horror for sin. In fact, what we do is we just pass sin off as another type of recreation. Or another way to enjoy life. Or to have fun. Or to just be you. And there is no horror to sin. David came understanding the horror of sin. He says, As we read, he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love, according to Your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. He said, you've got to do something about this because I don't have the power to do this. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He understood the horribleness of his sin. Where is that in the American church? Where is that in the church of the living God universal in this world. Where is the horror of sin? Where has it gone? Where is the conviction that the church once had? Where are the people of conviction that the church once was filled with? Where are they? There's no longer any horror for sin. It's just commonplace. We've been desensitized to everything. We've been desensitized to every type of immorality and language and substance and activity to the point where sin is no longer horrific. However, David did not approach sin like that. David approached sin knowing the horror of sin, that it is destructive. And then we see this, that there was conviction in his life not only due to the hankering for God's mercy, the horrific offense of sin, was also conviction due to the hostile nature of sin. David realized that his sin was hostility toward a holy God. That his sin was a slap in the face of his Creator. It was David saying, I know better. But I'm going to do what I want to do anyways because I'm going to seek my own pleasure and my own purpose over your will and your pleasure and your purpose, God. David in his repentance understood that his sin was hostile to the very nature of God. It was hostile to the holiness of God. When will we ever see that day again when we recognize sin as hostility toward God? It is you doing what you want to do in spite of a holy God telling you not to do it. We live in a country where we live by an anthem that I wish we would stop living by. That anthem is this. We say, I would rather ask for forgiveness than permission. You just go on and do what you want to do thinking that somehow God is going to honor your cheap repentance where you say, I did it. I enjoyed it. Sorry, God. See you in heaven. Can I say to you, David did not approach the throne of God in that way. David approached the throne of God understanding that his sin was hostility toward his Creator we see the next thing in regard to conviction of sin was he had conviction due to the honest truth. The honest truth. He had conviction due to the hankering for God's mercy, to the horrific offense of sin that it was, the hostile nature of sin. Then he had conviction due to the honest truth of sin. True conviction will see sin for what it is. We live in a time, unfortunately, where men do not want to see sin for what it is. In fact, if it says that it's sinful and you like it, what you do is say, well, that's not really what it says. But unfortunately, God's Word is very plain and very clear about what sin is and about what sin isn't. And You cannot change the mind of God. What He has said, He has said, and sin is still sin. And sin, all sin, is utterly sinful. Sinclair Ferguson said this, about his own sin, he said, my sin leads not to lasting pleasure, but to divine displeasure. The honest truth about sin is this, and David knew this, because at one time he thought that Bathsheba was going to bring him pleasure. And all she did was bring him pain. And all it did was bring divine displeasure. David realized that when I sin. It's not lasting pleasure as the enemy wants to sell it to me as. If that were the case, you would only have to sin once and you would be fulfilled forever. It's only sold as lasting pleasure. But it's definitely fleeting and it's definitely temporal. Sin is only fun for a season. But the fact that you have offended a holy God and brought Him divine displeasure ought to shake you to your very core took David to his very core. In fact, it caused him to be at this place in Psalm 51, a place of repentance and honesty and saying, God, I'm getting honest with You. It is my sin. It is my sin. It is my sin. And I have brought this sin into this equation. Not You, God. Not my dysfunctional family. Not my upbringing. Not that something someone did to me in the past. I am not a victim. Uh, You don't see that here. You don't see David coming to God and saying that he's a victim because people did bad things to him and so it caused him to sin. No, he's saying I am a sinner and I sin. He was honest about it. You want true repentance of your sin today? You better get honest about it. Because God knows when you're flippant about it. and He knows when your repentance is not truly authentic repentance when it's just fictitious on the outward. So we see the conviction of sin and the need of God's mercy, the first thing that we see David teaching us here in Psalm 51. We see secondly, if you're writing notes, write this down, the characteristics of true repentance, a conviction of sin, and a need of God's mercy. Secondly, a confession of sin. A confession. Verse 3, he says it like this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely, he says, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely, because of original sin, I was desperately wicked. Surely, because of the fall of Adam where sin entered in, me too, I am sinful. He understood. The the, the truth of original sin. You must understand that as well. Uh, You're not here today as a pretty good person. You're here today as a sinner in need of God's mercy. You're here today as a sinner in need of repentance. You cannot do this on your own. He confessed his sin. True confession is this, an acceptance of responsibility. He said, I know my transgressions are before me. Not anyone else's. He didn't blame his mom. He didn't blame his dad. He didn't blame his teacher. His abusers. He didn't blame anyone. There's no one to blame for our sin. He took full responsibility. He accepted his responsibility. I know my transgressions are always before me. You know what he said? I'm filth in and of myself. Well, I know that messes up the whole self-esteem gospel that you're hearing preached, that false gospel that is being promoted all over the world in our time. I'm going to tell you, the self-esteem gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The self-esteem gospel is going to send people straight to hell. Self-esteem has no place in biblical Christianity. In fact, we are commanded over and over and over again to die to ourselves and to die to our sin. How could we then turn around and have a self-esteem gospel? It is a false gospel hatched straight out of the fiery pits of hell to deceive the multitudes. So we see here He's honest about it. He accepted full responsibility. I know my transgressions are always before Me. True confession is an acceptance of responsibility. Second thing that true confession is that we see from David here, it's an admittance of wickedness. It's an admittance of wickedness. Sin is always before Me. He said there's nothing I can do about my sin. Can I say this to you? There's nothing you can do about your sin. It is who you are. And there is only one who can cure you from sin, and it's not yourself. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through His atoning sacrifice that He made on a cross for you when His blood was shed to cover you and atone for your sin. David understood. He admitted that everything in me is wicked. I know in modern Evangelicalism, it's not good to say that you're bad, right? You don't, don't say that about yourself. I've heard people say that in error. I say, I'm not much at all. I'm actually a worthless sinner. Oh, don't say that about yourself. Don't receive that. Don't receive it. That's what the Scripture confirms. Why would I not receive that? Why would I not receive that? There's none righteous, no, not one. I'm a nun, and I'm not righteous. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I am an all there is nothing good in me apart from Jesus Christ. And the sooner that I recognize that, the sooner I'm going to depend on Him more and more. So when these well-meaning charismatics get mad at you, don't say that about yourself that you're just a sinner saved by grace. I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace and I have nothing to offer a holy God. And it was because of His grace that I have been rescued. All to Him I owe. The end. But what about you? Nothing about me. Everything about Him. It is when we die to ourselves that we live. In Christ? He had a confession of his sin. An admittance of his wickedness. Sin is always before me. He called it exactly what it is. You know what he didn't say here? Uh, Go go back and read verses 3-5 through there. He said, my sin is always before me. You know what he didn't say? My spiritual deficiencies. My flaws. My shortcomings. Stop watering down sin. When it's sin, call it sin. Amen. When a sin calleth a sin, go to the throne of God. God, I have sinned against You. I have willfully violated Your commands. I have been disobedient in My flesh. My flesh is always longing disobedience toward You. God, teach Me to kill My flesh and to walk in Your Spirit. He confessed it. Showing an admittance of His wickedness. And then we see this thirdly true confession is this. an acknowledgement of God's holiness. Not only is it a confession of your wickedness, it is an acknowledgement of God's holiness. Who did he say that he sinned against? He said, Against you. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Wait a second. You sinned against Bathsheba because she really didn't have any say in it. You were the king. You told her to come. She couldn't not go, or you could have killed her. What about Uriah? Did you not sin against Uriah? Here's the thing neither Uriah nor Bathsheba were holy. When he says, I sinned against God and God alone, please understand, God is the only one who you can truly sin against. You can offend other people by your actions, but you can't sin against something that is not holy. He understood this principle, and he knew, hey, we as human beings are all sinful. There's nothing holy in and of us, but God is holy. And he said, against you and you alone have I, what, sinned. Done what is evil in your sight. He was concerned about what he had done to God. An acknowledgment of God's holiness and saying against you and you alone, have I done this? Where's that heart in the American church culture? Where is it? No, we're worried about who's going to find out. We're worried about who's going to know. Can I tell you this? God already knows every sin that you're holding on to right now. And it is He that you are sinning against. You should not be worried about what everybody else thinks first and foremost. You ought to be worrying about what a holy God thinks. David was concerned about that. Against you and you alone have I sinned is what he said. There was an acknowledgement of God's holiness. And then we see this fourthly in regard to confession. was an awareness of total depravity. Awareness of total depravity. I know when we talk about this doctrine, many people don't like it. Right? The Augustinian people stood for total depravity. The Pelagian followers, they went against it. We then saw that again throughout the course of time with Arminianism versus Calvinism. People don't like total depravity. They don't like to say that we are in and of ourselves totally sinful and we are in need of God's grace and that is the only hope that we have. They don't like to say that. I'm not sure why they don't like to say that other than they don't understand how utterly sinful we really are. They haven't been honest with themselves yet. But we see here David understood it. In fact, he taught on it. Let's read what he says here. He says there in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In the womb. Check this out. Surely you desire truth in the inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Teaching us of the total depravity of man that we are truly sinful at birth. That Romans is right when it says that we are, as human beings, unrighteous. Because there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks after God. It's impossible. You were born in your sin. And so David understood this principle and he had an awareness of total depravity. I wish in the church we would get an awareness of total depravity. Because when we get an awareness of total depravity, you know what we learn to do? Trust in the grace and the mercy of God alone. We learn to trust in the grace and the mercy of God that was shown to us in Jesus Christ. And we learn to trust in that alone and not trust in our own self. Because I promise you this, five seconds outside of Jesus in your flesh, you know what you're going to do? You're going to sin. Five seconds outside of Jesus, I don't care how saved you are this morning, five seconds outside of Jesus, you doing things your way, you're going to prove your total depravity again, because you're going to get in the flesh, because that's the only other option you have than walking in the Spirit. When you get in the flesh, you are going to lead yourself down a road of sin. Oh, it may be what we define as a little sin, but I promise you this, a little leaven always leavens the whole loaf. Once you accept a little bit, it's going to be easier for you to accept the next thing, right? It was easy for David to accept just a glance over to the rooftop next door. Then a glance wasn't enough. And he had to have her. Then when he had to have her, he did. And he had his way with her. And then when the going got tough, he began to cover it up. That's how sin works. It always takes you definitely deeper than you ever thought you could ever go into your wickedness. So We see he had a confession of this, his total depravity. I am sinful. You know what David didn't say? He didn't say, I am victorious. I am a child of God. I am this and I am great and I am good and my mommy said I'm perfect. He said, surely I was sinful at birth. But in and of myself, my only hope is God and His mercy. That's it. So we see... His repentance included a confession of sin and included a conviction of sin. Thirdly, I want you to see this. A confidence in God's forgiveness. He has a confidence in God's forgiveness that I love and I hope that you see this morning because as I've said, we're all sinners and we're all need, in need of His grace and His mercy so we can be confident of God's forgiveness. Watch how confident He is here. Verse 6, He says, Surely you desire truth in the inner, inner parts. He says, "Truly, Surely holiness is still your standard. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. There's no doubt in his mind. He knew that God was the place to go for cleansing and forgiveness. And so we see he has a confidence in God's forgiveness. And he had a confidence in God's forgiveness through an understanding of some things. And I want you to write these things down. I want you to know these things. Do an understanding first of God's desire for holiness in his children. God's desire of holiness in his children. He says, as we read there in verse 6, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Did you know this holiness comes from the inside and works its way on the outside? He understood that holiness is something that God does inside of you and then it then permeates outside of you. And so he knew that God had a desire for holiness in his children. And he also knew this. He knew that If God desired for him to be holy, then God is more than equipped to make him into a holy vessel. He knows that God said, Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. He's already declared his helplessness in regard to sin because of his need of confession, because of his conviction. And then now he's saying that my only hope is God to do a work of holiness internally in me because that is God's desire. So we see through an understanding of God's desire for holiness in the lives of His children, he then had confidence that God would forgive him. The second thing that we see gave him understanding was God's decrees concerning his willingness to forgive. He understood that God had promised forgiveness. In Psalm 86.5, we see this recorded, You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on You, or call to You. We know that that's reiterated in Paul's preaching and his teaching when he says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And a person who is truly repentant repentant will call upon the Lord and understand that the Lord has decreed forgiveness, that he is willing to forgive. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9, Daniel says this. He says, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. I don't know about you, but I am thankful for scripture that says things like that. He is merciful and forgiving, even though I have rebelled against him. I don't have to hide my rebellion for God to forgive me. I have to get honest about my rebellion. And to say, God, I am rebellious in my very nature. And without Your forgiveness, I am nothing. And so as we see here, this is exactly what was going on in David's life. He knew the decrees concerning God's willingness to forgive. He knew what Daniel's. text said there in Daniel nine 9, that God is merciful and forgiving even though we rebel against Him. You knew what Exodus chapter 34 said in verse 6. There it says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. He understood that there is a God who is more than willing to forgive sin, but He cannot tolerate wickedness. We live in a society that forgets that. They act as if God can tolerate wickedness. He cannot tolerate wickedness. The only thing that God can do and will do with wickedness is forgive you and cleanse you of your wickedness when you call out to Him for that cleansing. David understood these principles and decrees from the Word of God. He understood the principle that we see later on recorded by the hand of John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 John 1.9 that says, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He knew these things. They are the very principles and decrees that we see throughout all of God's Word that when a person truly repents, forgiveness is there and available. So through an understanding of God's desire for holiness in the lives of His children, through God's decrees concerning His willingness to forgive, Then he had confidence in God's forgiveness through an understanding of God's discipline. God's discipline. And that discipline is what moves us to seek His forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Every one of them. He chastens them with a rod. And He says this, if you are without discipline, then you're illegitimate. You're not His son. Oh, how comforting it is to know this, that when I send the Lord's hand of discipline moves me back and aligns me with His will even when I want to be stubborn in my flesh, and my rebellion. I'm thankful that I am at a point in my Christian life that I have grown to this point that I appreciate the discipline of God. To know that God loves me and I am His Son and He proves that every time He has to discipline me and bring me to my knees in repentance because I have done something that has offended Him or offended His name or was contrary to His word. We need to learn to be thankful for God's hand of discipline. David understood that. It's his discipline that moves us to seek forgiveness. That's what gave him such confidence in forgiveness. David knew the moment that Nathan said what he said, this man was sent by God. And this man was sent by God that I might receive God's forgiveness because I promise you this up until that point, David was under the hand of God's discipline. He was miserable on the inside. He understood God's discipline as that thing that moves him toward receiving true forgiveness in the Lord. And then we see his confidence in God's forgiveness was fourthly, through an understanding of God's definite pardon of sin. David understood that God would not just kind of pardon your sin, but he would definitely pardon your sin, that he has the ability to wash it whiter than snow, to cleanse you Completely. Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. So far as the east is from the west, I'm not a real smart guy, but you can start off east and you'll never go west. You will never, ever, ever make it west. You will stay east. East and west never meet. I'm thankful that God's Word doesn't say that He cast them as far as the north is from the south because if you start north, eventually you'll be going south at some point in time. But He took the time to assure us of the confidence that we have in His forgiveness that his, He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. But he cast it to the floor of the ocean and He remembers it no more. David had confidence in God's forgiveness. True repentance will be characterized by confidence in God's forgiveness. You know that when my knee bows and my heart bows, that God is there to forgive and to wash and to cleanse. And so we see this next. Not only was there a conviction of sin, in a need of God's mercy, a confession of sin, a confidence in God's forgiveness. Fourthly, there was a call for God's power. A call for God's power. Watch this what he says here in verse 10. He says, Create in me me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from Your presence or take Your Holy Spirit from me. That was the, the, the worst thing that he could imagine because David had seen the Spirit be removed from Saul. And in those days, the Spirit could be removed. I'm thankful today that in Christ, those of you who are of Christ and are in the church, the Spirit has now indwelt you never to be removed. He is the guarantee that you have sealing you until the day of redemption. So I'm thankful for that. David, in his time, did not have that great promise. And here he is, and the worst thing that he can even imagine The worst thing that he can imagine is not fellowshipping with God like he once had. Missing out on God's fellowship and intimacy. So he goes on and he says, do not cast me from Your presence or take Your Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation. And he goes on to say, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Verse 13 says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to You. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. We see a call here for God's power. His power to do what? What? Watch this. See see the scripture as he opens it up, as it plays out here. Number one, his power to recreate hearts. He says, Created me a pure heart. Why? Because he realized my heart is wicked. Aren't you thankful that in Christ? He has created in you a new and a pure heart that before you had this heart of stone that Ezekiel talked about, but now He has given you a heart of flesh. That flesh not in reference to your sin, but a heart that is real and is alive. He recreates hearts. He says, created in me a pure heart. Why? Because He knew His heart wasn't pure. That's what led Him into adultery. That's what led Him into murder. That's what led Him into all of His scheming. His wicked heart. Don't listen to the world, people. Listen to me. Pay attention. When they say follow your heart, do not follow your human heart, please. Because when you follow your human heart, you will follow your human heart directly into sin. you're going to follow a heart, follow the heart of God. If you are in Christ, you have been given a new heart. It is a pure heart. It is the heart of Christ that beats for righteousness. Follow that heart. Follow the Spirit who leads you into that kind of life. He gave a call for God's power to recreate his heart. To renew his spirit. He said renew a steadfast spirit within me. He said I'm tired of being topsy-turvy. I'm tired of being inconsistent, right? Because the opposite of steadfast is this. true steadfastness is that you are consistent in your walk with God in every area of your life. You are consistent on a day-to-day basis. Standing in the hope that you have in the Word of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just being consistent in the truth. He said, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I need some consistency. Man, shouldn't that be our prayer when we repent? I need some consistency, Lord. Create in me that steadfast spirit. Renew that in me. You see, He also calls not only on His power to recreate hearts and to renew spirits, He calls on a powerful God to reassure His children. He says, do not cast me from Your presence. Please, God, let me know. Please God, let me know that I'm Yours. Oh, shouldn't that be a part of our repentance? God, may I feel the joy of the fellowship with You once again. Oh, he gets to that in a minute, doesn't he? He he didn't want to not sense the presence of God in his life. He knew what it was like to not have the presence of God in his life, and he knew what it was to have the presence of God in his life. And he knew that he did not want to go back to a place where the presence of God had fled from him. Oh, I wish we would be concerned with the intimate presence of God in our lives in our day. That would be the most valuable thing to us. The only thing that matters is Christ. Christ in us. Oh, what would happen if we got back to that in the church? Call for God's power, His power to recreate hearts, to renew spirits, to reassure His children. Do not cast me from Your presence. Please give me that assurance of knowing that I'm Yours and You're mine. You know why that's important in repentance? Because I know this, when I have ever been caught in sin, the enemy loves to tell me this, God will never love you again. He will never accept you again. Intimacy with God is over. And it not it comforting when we come to that place of bended knee and brokenness? And God says, I am never going to leave you. I am never going to forsake you. You are mine and I am yours. We need the power of Christ's reassurance here. So we see a call for Power. Power to recreate hearts, renew spirits, reassure children. Power to restore joy. Isn't that what he says next in verse 12? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Did you know this? David didn't say restore to me the joy of my salvation as many people misquote. I've heard you do it. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Oh really? You have salvation? So that makes you the God of salvation. That wrong answer. The Bible says He is the God of salvation. He is the giver of salvation. It is restoring to you the joy of His salvation salvation it is what he has done you get up from your knees after repenting filled with joy because of the salvation that he paid for you to have not that you earned by your good merit or even earned by your own repentance he earned it for you through the blood sacrifice of jesus christ restore to me the joy of knowing that kind of relationship notice he didn't say restore that relationship but he openly admitted that he had forfeited the joy and in in walking in that relationship and enjoying that relationship. Oh, I pray to God today that there would be some Christians who are not walking in joy because there's sin in your life. Be broken by a holy God and get on your face and cry out to God to restore the joy that you once had in Christ that is there and available for you that you are continually giving away to something that belongs to your flesh. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then we see this in the call for God's power, the fifth thing, that God had the power, and He knew this, to repurpose the sinner. To repurpose the sinner. He goes on and He says this in the second part of verse 12. He says, and grant me a willing spirit. I want to be obedient. Repurpose me. I was disobedient, but I want to be obedient. A willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways. I'll do something for you. I'll teach them. And sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of Your righteousness. He wants to sing praise unto God. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare Your praise. What he was saying here, he was saying that he has confidence in a God who has the power to repurpose the sinner. To take a sinner and make them someone who teaches a transgressor. That's what people want to say all the time about me. Well, Who do you think you are? you Are just a sinner too? Standing up there, I've been repurposed. I've been repurposed. I've been repurposed in Christ and here's the deal. You're right. You're absolutely right in pointing out my sin. But I promise you this, I have owned every single one of them. I am ashamed of all of them and Jesus Christ has atoned for the worst and the least of them. He has atoned for all of them and I am right with God. Therefore, because I am right with God, because He has the power to repurpose sinners, I can now proclaim the truth. Note to Jesus' teaching when He said, Don't point out a speck in your brother's eye when you have a beam in yours. His teaching didn't stop there. He said first, remove the beam from your eye. Then, you can point to the speck. He didn't say don't ever point to the speck. He said make sure that when you're pointing to a speck, you don't have a beam in your eye. Repent of your sin. And when you repent of your sin and you trust in My power, then and only then will I repurpose you so that you can do what David said here. Teach transgressors your way and sinners To turn back to you. Oh, how beautiful it is that God takes messed up people like myself and like each of you. And He repurposes us. He repurposes us. Not that there's any good in us at all. There's no good just as there was no good in David and He proved it. He knew that God had the power to repurpose him and He asks for God to repurpose him. Teach transgressors and to testify to God's greatness. To sing of His praise and His wonder. You can't overcome sin in your own power, I assure you of this. In fact, we know that Scripture tells us that over and over and over again that we are helpless. Romans 5, verse 6 says this, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless. At just the right time when we were still powerless. You're still powerless in and of yourself. It says Christ died for the ungodly. I'm thankful that Christ died for the ungodly to repurpose sinners that they would proclaim His name, His goodness, His forgiveness, and His power to sin. David understood this as he called for God's power. Fifthly, don't worry, there's only six. Fifthly, the characteristics of true repentance include a conviction of sin and a need for mercy, confession of sin, a confidence in God's forgiveness, a call for God's power. Here's a word we don't use often enough. A contrition before God. A contrition before God. Brokenness. Humility. We we don't see that anymore, right? We come to church. We do our thing. We walk out the door. There's no brokenness. There's no contrition. There's no heaviness of heart because of sin in your life. Or heaviness in your heart for those unbelievers who are in your family that you ought to be broken and humbled praying for. But David comes and he understands contrition before God. Verse 16, he says this. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Contrition before a holy God. Isaiah chapter 66 Verse 1 says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? I love that God uses some sarcasm there. Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem. I don't esteem the One who who builds me these cathedrals and these temples with, with no heart behind it and no brokenness and no humility. Here's the One I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at My Word. Tremble's at my Word. I want you to think about that for a second because we don't live in a time where we tremble at His Word. We read His Word and we act as if it's pick and choose. We act as if it's a buffet or a smorgasbord. We, we walk through it and we say, I like this part. I'll have one of those. I don't like this part. Disregard that. And we walk on to the next chapter and we do the next thing. And we, I like this. I like love. I like mercy. I like judgment. Don't want that. Sin. Don't want that. Oh, I like peace. And I like joy. Those things affect me in a positive way. Oh, wrath. Judgment. Hell? Oh, let's erase those? He says the person that God desires is that person who trembles at His Word, who is humble and contrite in spirit before Him. It is that person who is on bended knee week after week self-righteous. People wonder, why is that person always going to the altar? That person's always being broken. That's the one God's going to use. Not the person who in their self-righteousness says, no, if I if I show any weakness, people are going to think less of me. Listen, you have weakness. Own it. And be contrite before a holy God and bow yourself before Him. Bend your knees to the One who is worthy of all of our praise and adoration. He is holy. We are not. David understood contrition before God. The contrition is marked by some things. He writes them down. They're marked by a hunger for what God desires. He tells us in verse 16, you do not... Delight in sacrifice. He identifies for us what God does not desire. Let me ask you this. Did God require sacrifice in the Levitical system? Yes. Did He require offerings? Yes. But can I tell you this? They meant nothing without contrition. They meant nothing without contrition over sin. Here's the thing. We, we, we sing songs. We raise our hands. We clap. You might even dance if you got a little Pentecostal in you. Those things mean nothing without contrition. Oh, you drop your offering in the offering box and you've done something. Nothing without contrition. Nothing without humility. Those aren't even acts of worship, those are just things you do trying to make yourself feel better about yourself. He says, I delight. And esteem he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, who is hungry for what I desire. What does he desire? Contrition is marked by hunger for what God desires. It's then, secondly, marked by a humble spirit. A humble spirit. He says in 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. What does that mean? It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3 as he preached the Sermon on the Mount, as he went through the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed. Are the poor in spirit. That word blessed is Makarios. It means happy. It's true happiness. Uh, You're not going to find it anywhere but in Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says right there, blessed are the broken. Blessed are the contrite. Blessed are those who come to God with the right attitude of you are God, and I am not. You are all sufficient, and I am all insignificant. You are everything. I am nothing. And it is only by Your grace that I can even bow before You and live. We see, David understood contrition. Humble in spirit. He goes on and says, another part of contrition before God is a heart of brokenness. A heart of brokenness. 17, a broken and contrite heart, O God, You will not despise. Where is the brokenness in the church? Where's the brokenness? Oh, it's broken. Where's the brokenness? Where's the brokenness in your life? When's the last time that you wept over your sin? Legitimate question. Did you know this? A godly person will weep over their sin because they know this. They know it is that sin that nailed their beautiful Savior to that tree. They will weep over their sin and they will cry out to God for the forgiveness that only He can give. There will be a brokenness. Oh, David teaches us this in the Psalm of repentance, contrition before God. It will be an honor of God above all else. Look what he says in the last part of 17. Sacrifices of God are a broken in spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise all that He wanted. Was what God wanted. That's what repentance is. It's when you get to a place that all you want is what God wants, contrition before God will be marked by a hunger for what God desires, a humble spirit, a heart of brokenness, and an honor of God above self. When's the last time in your repentance you cried out to God asking what He wants instead of telling Him what you want as if He didn't know? When's the last time in studying His Word you opened it up and said, Lord, show me what You want me to see? When's the last time in your prayers that you prayed, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Oh, that's contrition before a holy God, honoring Him above everything else, even me. I would to God that He would ignite hearts like that in this body of believers. True repentance will be characterized by true. Contrition. Can I say this to you today, if you're broken here this morning, don't wait until some type of invitation. A broken person is not going to care any longer about what anybody else thinks. When God breaks you this morning, causes you to repent, and to humble yourself before His throne, don't wait till I'm through preaching. Don't do God that disservice to think that He needs to wait on Kirk Hall to finish. He doesn't have to wait on me for anything. That as His Spirit breaks you, you humble yourself and bow yourself before His throne. You see true, true contrition before God. So, true repentance is characterized by a conviction of sin, a confession of sin, a confidence in God's forgiveness, a call for God's power, a contrition before God. And then last, I want you to see this. Many people read this and miss it. 18 says, In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see what he just did there? He's talking about sacrifices and offerings again. They they came after forgiveness and contrition and brokenness and all the things that God can offer us for our sin. Then those things were then acceptable. But here's the thing that I want you to see. David didn't stop at a cry just for himself being restored and revived. He is literally praying for the revival of Israel, for restoration. He stopped what he was doing and talking about himself and he gave a cry for God's restoration of others and on others. David didn't let his cry for true repentance stop with just an inward focus on him and him alone. He extended his prayers to include others. In fact, the whole nation of Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem It was a cry for God's restoration. That's what revival really is. A calling on on God on the behalf of others. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, we see him praying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Oh, don't dare repent of your sin here today and say thank you God for your repentance and not pray for the repentance of others. Don't leave here and say thank you God for your mercy and your grace. Get up and walk out as if you deserved it and not stop to pray for the restoration and mercy and grace that others might receive. David gave us a great example of a cry for God's restoration in the lives of others. Calling upon God on their behalf. Concern for their spiritual well-being. And a compassion for the healing and restoration of their souls. What would happen to the church if we truly repented? If we truly repented, we would get back to these things. When we're done repenting of our personal sin, we would say, no, Lord, we repent and we cry out to You for the sins of the nation. God, would You break their heart? Would You show them what You can do? Would You show them Your mercy, Your grace, Your forgiveness, Your power? Would You show them the cross? Would You let me be a vessel for Your glory and for the Gospel? Would You do a work in this world, God? No, we pray, Lord, thank You for forgiveness. I'm going to heaven. Yeehaw! Forget about the rest of the people who are on their way to hell. You repented for your own good. Not for the well-being of others. David included both. At the end of his repentance, he said, oh yes, God, restore. Restore Israel. Restore your people. Bring revival to your land so that their worship will be acceptable as well. He wanted full restoration of worship. Oh, I would to God that we could see that in our country. True repentance will be characterized by these things. So the conclusion is this. If you're here this morning, and you need to repent of your sin, now is the time for repentance. Now is the time to cry out to God for the forgiveness that you need. To the unbeliever, I say this. Mark, in his Gospel, says in chapter 1, As he records the words of Jesus, verse 15 of chapter 1, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. To the unbeliever, I say this today, it starts with repentance and faith. Repentance from your sin, repentance from your unbelief, and faith in Jesus Christ as the only One who can save you. That's the good news that he was referencing there. What is the good news? The good news is this, that 2,000 years ago on an old rugged cross, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, God in flesh, came to this earth and He died a brutal death on the cross. And the reason that He died a brutal death on the cross is because your sin and my sin had to be paid for or atoned for. And He died in our place so that we could be set free from that sin so that we could be forgiven. He was our substitute. He bore the wrath of God. He bore our punishment. And He bore our death so that we could be forgiven of all of our sin. And in identifying with His death, we also identify in His burial the fact that He was buried, and that three days later, He rose from the grave so that we too could be risen to new life even this very day as you call on Jesus to save you from your sin. To the unbeliever, I say this. Today is the day of repentance. Repent of your sin. Turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And I promise you this. He will save you this very day. To the believer, I say this to you. It's important that we exercise continual repentance in our lives. None of you yet here, I am assuming by the looks of you, and you can assume the same from me, have yet been glorified. Oh, but one day you will. But until then, until then you are struggling with the old nature. There is a battle going on between your spirit and the flesh. And you must constantly mortify and kill that flesh, repenting of your sin over and over and over again. Martin Luther said this. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. Of repentance. That means this, we are to walk in a continual state of repentance. A continual state that David has so eloquently laid out for us today. A continual state of conviction of sin, confession of sin, confidence in God's forgiveness, a consistent... Uh, confidence in a call for God's power and what God is able to do to walk in contrition before God and to walk as one crying out for those who are in need of salvation and restoration. He's given us what repentance really should look like. We as believers should constantly walk in that. And I say this to you, are you walking in that? Are you walking in that? Again, when is the last time that tears accompanied your repentance? Oh, you would grieve if you lost a loved one. Do you grieve knowing that your sin is offensive to a holy God? and That ultimately your sin nailed His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to an old rugged cross? When's the last time that your repentance was accompanied with your tears? Do you walk in repentance? Will you pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for the truth. But by the power of Your Spirit now, we ask that You move. You would draw sinners to forgiveness and eternal life as they surrender their lives to Jesus. God, that You would give restoration and forgiveness and healing for the way we're children who are here today as they repent and they're broken before Your throne. God, I pray that most of all you're glorified by everything that has been done and everything that has been said here today. Bring others into your kingdom now as only you can. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.